2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey, guys. guys. Good morning. Hey there. Bonsoir. Aaron, who did you talk to this week? Uh, Hamilton Morris. Um, Hamilton does a column for Vice that uh, touches on psychedelic drugs and the subcultures that arise around them, experimental compounds and all sorts of crazy shit. Uh, And he's also done some really excellent features for Harper's. Uh, recently, uh, he's a really interesting guy, young guy, 24 years old, I think, um, side piece of trivia. He is Errol Morris's son. Um, and it's a really good conversation. I, I highly recommend it. Um, we haven't done a lot of science, I feel like on this program and he really, he's a, he's a scientist and he talks about writing as a scientist. So. Great. Um, if you want to talk about writing as a scientist or writing as any other kind of test, that's not very good. You just don't have my segue game, Max. Well, you've been doing it for a year. You got it down. If you're the kind of guy who likes to make a snappy segue, you might want to do it from <laughs> one newsletter to the next with Tiny Letter. They're our sponsor um, from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. I th- believe we have a second sponsor. We do. We do. It's our friends at Hulu Plus. Hulu Plus allows you to stream thousands of TV shows and movies straight to your phone or tablet or TV you should check them out, huluplus.com slash longform. You can sign up for a free trial. Here is Aaron with Hamilton. Hello. Welcome, Hamilton Morris. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I've, re- I've been reading your, your column advice uh, for some time. Um, you do a monthly column advice, is that right? Originally, it was supposed to be a monthly column, but it's come out pretty irregularly since it first started. What uh, what have been the limiting factors on uh, its frequency? I think doing a monthly column doesn't necessarily encourage quality writing. Um, you know, that works better for small, little, short investigations of things, which interest me less and less as time goes on. Yes. Um, the basic format of the column is it's stories loosely around psychedelics, I guess I would say. Is that yes. right? Um, or psychoactive drugs. Psychoactive drugs. Um, 
how how I mean how did how did you end up how did you end up doing a column about psychedelic drugs? Where where did this interest start for you? Well, I've always been interested in psychoactive drugs, and I've always been interested in science, and I studied science and continue to study science, mm -hmm. and that scientific background. I think gave me a certain advantage in covering subjects related to psychoactive drugs. Um, I think that's a subject that a lot of people find interesting. It's you know it's not to some it may seem like a niche, but when you really look at the amount of coverage in the mass media related to these seemingly obscure designer drugs, it's immense. It's you know Fox News, New York Times, everyone is covering it constantly. This is, these are huge international issues, and. Uh, and the main problem with the coverage is that it's not being written by people who have any true connection to the subject. They're not interested in analytical chemistry or toxicology or pharmacology or the history of the research. And so you end up with a lot of misinformation. And I thought that I could investigate some of these subjects and do it in such a way that I was going to minimize the amount of misinformation that was circulating. Originally, I would not say that I did that very effectively, but I hope that I'm getting a little bit better. I'm going to rewind you slightly there in that you said, um, I've always been interested in, in this topic. And you know, when someone will say, like, I've always been interested in writing, that's sort of yeah. one thing. But saying you've always been interested in psychedelic drugs, I mean, when, at what point did you sort of become conscious of them and become conscious of the sort of scientific element of them? At a very young age. I was probably in fifth or sixth grade reading the popular books on the subject. There was a, a book called Buzzed that mm. was, you know, the sort of thing you'd find in a school library. And I read about DMT and found it extremely interesting and wanted to learn more. But this was actually, you know, it's amazing to think this was, although the internet existed, Wikipedia didn't really exist during that period. Um, and it was still somewhat difficult to actually find information about these substances. So I, uh, I was interested, but I didn't have the necessary tools to investigate them the way I can now. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like my first exposure to a lot of that stuff was uh, in like countercultural writing from the 60s and 70s. Like I definitely the first time I ever heard of DMT was, I think, um, in the electric Kool-Aid acid test, like someone is riding on top of the bus and has this terrible experience, and then they're sort of locked out of time for the rest of the book. But they're, you know, when I read that, that book was 20, 25 years old. Um, it seemed like, uh, at least during my own youth, there was sort of a, a divide in the counterculture from this sort of 60s and 70s roots of a lot of this stuff to the sort of more commercial high times of the 90s. Um, how did you sort of plug into the more scientific elements of, of it? Absolutely. And there was actually a lot of resistance. I think there was a period where people started to think that the subject was sort of uncool, that it was nerdy, that it was very male, which it yep. certainly is extremely male. Um, there, there will be no argument about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and if you look at some of the material that was being published in Vice around 2006, 2006, yep. it's critical and mocking of that sort of thing, yeah. mocking of, of cannabis, of psychedelics. There's an article written by the international editor, Andy Capper, you know, 
mocking how ridiculous all of these acronyms for various obscure. I like how you're, uh, you're just keeping like a like a log of people who've like uh, who who've had this attitude. <laughs> yes. Well, but I, I think it's you know I don't necessarily think any less of them but that was just the attitude during that period yeah. that it was nerdy that it was what's the point of taking some obscure compound with a 10 letter name that no one has heard of when you could just eat psilocybin containing mushrooms or something like that and uh and then that same person who wrote this article andy capper is now extremely interested in the subject because it's undeniably important as an issue it's these things are consumed by millions of people internationally and it's not a, a niche thing anymore so you came to it originally from a standpoint of science but your work i would say involves sort of three role it involves a role of a scientist but also the role of sort of an investigator and also the role of a writer what like what what made you want to write about rather than say write a phd thesis about this stuff well there's a lot of advantages in approaching things journalistically that you don't have when you come at them from a scientific standpoint. And it's it's a shame that there isn't more of an interdisciplinary approach to a lot of scientific investigations, because often the result is that misinformation is produced. Again, there's misinformation in journalism and there's misinformation in science. And if you combine the best elements of both of those disciplines, you can come a little bit closer to the truth. And, you know, if you want to understand a drug phenomenon, you're going to need to look at it medically, chemically, anthropologically. You need to talk to people. You need to interview people. You need to look at the drug policy, the chemistry, the history. There's a lot of different factors that need to be examined in order to understand even the most simple, minute drug phenomenon. And uh, and if you're approaching something purely as a scientist or as an academic, there are huge limitations in what you can do. There's, you know, budgetary limitations. Um, ethical limitations. Ethical, all. huge ethical limitations. Um, you have to sort of strip detail from things in a certain way that can actually remove valuable information. Interesting. So... In a, you cited sort of a number of roles there that even extended beyond those three, sort of anthropology. And in terms of your own work, um, I mean, you've recently had a couple uh, fe a feature in Harper's, and you've been doing some longer work. What sort of a form does your day-to-day -day life take as you are, are sort of working on this stuff? I mean, I, I talk, we talked to a lot of journalists who you choose your story, you make the calls, you make the interview, you do the writing. This is when you do something in a more interdisciplinary way like this. I'm sort of interested in how you how do you fit that around a life and, and how you budget your time? Well, it doesn't work well with, you know, a normal life, I would say. It's not <laughs> it's not the sort of situation where the clock strikes five on Friday night and I go and have a, a brewski with <laughs> my pals at the bar I uh, I do have to work seven days a week non-stop looking at things reading yeah. and uh, and I'm never I am you know I'm never disappointed by how much information and how many stories come to you once you just keep asking questions and keep looking um, and that's not just in journalism, it's in science as well. It's just amazing how much information is sort of hidden, waiting for people to discover it. And so, I think that they there's a lot of 
convergences and all of the things. I'm, the main project that I've been working on now has been a, a scientific review article um, looking at, it's mostly based in analytical chemistry, but it's I've been looking at a lot of history of these different PCP compounds. And it's just amazing how much history is there that is kind of ignored in the scientific literature because scientists aren't looking at newspapers the way a journalist would. Right. Um, and then when you start thinking, well, I'm going to move outside of the scientific literature, which becomes very inbred. You find a lot of repetition, a lot of, a lot of repeating errors just because they're in the scientific literature. People think that they're inherently correct. But then once you start to move outside, you start to really understand where certain misconceptions come from and, and gain a, a more complete picture of what's happening. I'm, I'm interested in sort of how people react on both sides of the spectrum. So from the scientific level, do what do you have like a, a background in science? I mean, is this the kind of thing where you can walk in and talk to people or people are like, what are your qualifications here? Well, generally, it's interesting. It's kind of the opposite. They they assume the worst. When you walk into any situation as a journalist, which you do whether you like it or not, if you say that you come from a magazine or you're with a camera crew, and uh, then they assume that you don't know anything at all. And when you do know something about the subject, then you have surprised them, you've caught them off guard, and it puts you in a position where you can take advantage of that. Yeah. And to sort of flip that coin, um, you're ultra interested in, in drug culture and, and the sort of uh, human communities and, and rivalries that spring up around, around that, that culture. Does writing about that stuff make you make people within the scientific community suspicious of you and that you also have contact with the uh, more illegal realms uh, of, of drug culture? Thus far, it hasn't, actually. Um, and that may be because I live in New York and because I have intentionally selected relationships with people who are a little bit less conservative. Um, but it hasn't because... I think that most people that meet me understand that I'm not engaged in any of this in, in any sort of a, a criminal capacity yeah. and that my interest is in the history and the chemistry and that is good. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember uh, before before you, there was a, another, someone else had a drug column in Vice um, and ended up dying, I believe. Yes, yeah. I remember. I, I remember it very distinctly dur during my teenage years. There wow. was a, a skate shop on uh, Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley where I would go get get Vice magazine, and I read this guy's column. Uh, I think he lived in Brooklyn, like, uh, and then there was just one uh, one column that was like he was blah blah blah, and he went to sleep forever. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm amazed that you are familiar with that. I was actually thinking, as I was saying before, that there was this criticism of those sorts of substances. I was thinking that that was an exception, uh, yeah. but then I assumed no one would have even been familiar with I don't with remember that. his... I can't recall his name. I think he was European, wasn't he? Was yes, he, that's right, yeah. Um, so, yes, that's an exception. That was someone who was doing research on obscure psychedelics, and I think probably died of a heroin overdose or yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think that. it was like a, he was on like a wide combination of things, at a, a drug interaction of some kind. But uh, 
you know, in pursuing this stuff, whether, you know, whether you yourself are involved, you're dealing with things that could be fatal to people. I mean, these are investigations that have true risks. How, I mean, how do you navigate the sort of the risk element in, in these kind? I mean, the only way to test these things is on people in a certain way. Hmm. That's a, you know, I don't really see myself as a advocate uh-huh. of use necessarily. Yeah. Um, and I certainly haven't publicly encouraged anyone to sure. use drugs recklessly. Um, but so it's not something that I'm hugely concerned with, I suppose. But, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting question, I suppose, in a, in a little bit less of a direct way than that. Just writing about a substance, whether you're saying something critical of it or if you're saying something positive about it, it doesn't really matter what sort of value judgment you make. Just talking about it, period, will advertise the substance. Absolutely. And so anyone at any publication, regardless of their attitude towards the substance that chooses to write about it, will popularize it. And that has been documented repeatedly for decades. Um, There's no question that this is a very real effect glue sniffing is a is the classic example it was a very rare unusual behavior until people started writing scare stories about the dangers of glue sniffing and then all of a sudden everyone realized that you could get high from sniffing airplane glue that's not necessarily something that people would naturally do all the time so yes that is a concern and for that reason i do neglect certain subjects more than others. I don't really write about opiates or opioids in any major way because I think that that class, more so than other classes, has a, a pretty significant propensity for hurting people and causing serious problems, or rather that you know people get into problems yeah. with these substances more so than other classes. And, uh, you know... That's just, I think a lot of people feel that way about opiates. Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer, cutting in for a quick minute to tell you about our sponsor. Uh, You may have heard of Hulu.com, but I really encourage you to check out Hulu Plus. Uh, It's a way that you can watch thousands of great shows and movies directly anywhere you go on your TV, on your iPhone, iPad, tablet, wherever, uh, wherever you are, unlimited free viewing for $7.99 a month. I use it a lot myself. I watch Daily Show, uh, Community, The New Girl, uh, South Park, huge number of shows I watch. I watch through through the Hulu Plus service. Uh, right now, if you sign up with Hulu Plus at HuluPlus.com forward slash long form, uh, you'll get a free trial and you'll help support this show. Um, so it's a double win for you, a double win for us. Uh, I really encourage you to check it out, and we thank Hulu Plus for their sponsorship. Uh, here I am back again with Hamilton Morris. How do you feel about yourself as as a research subject? I mean, some some of the stuff's not even illegal. I mean, do you do you have hard limits for sort of the way that you want to re- relate to things as a scientist? I know that most of the sort of most well-known scientists in this field, be they uh, Alexander Shulgin, m- are mostly identified as sort of self-experimenters on yes. a certain level. 
Yes, and there's a long, rich history of self-experimentation in drug discovery, in medicinal chemistry, and it's stigmatized today, but it's not inherently dangerous, and it's amazing what can be discovered with self-experimentation. So it's not something that should be immediately dismissed as invalid. There are obvious biases that can come into play, but... uh, Alexander Shulgin is a, the perfect example, and the things that he discovered through self-experimentation are utterly amazing and would have never been found if he had just been doing experiments on rodents. Um, he's, he is the perfect example of the value of self-experimentation. Um, but at the same time, there are certain things that by using them yourself, it's controversial, it's will make people angry. Uh, the project, one project that I'm working on right now has to do with a HIV medication called efavirenz, and uh, it's considered to be a significant drug of abuse in South Africa. Um, oh, yeah, someone just had a feature on that. I can't remember. There was, there was an, art, an article this week came out, out about alleging that people were intentionally uh, infecting themselves with HIV in order yes, to get it from the government. Exactly, yes, that's the classic story. People are intentionally infecting themselves with HIV, that uh, the drug has to be delivered in armored cars because it's so valuable that bandits will rob the delivery people at gunpoint to obtain the material. Um, you know, in South Africa, the stories about it are just endless. Uh, and they're, And it's not all... Fabricated. This really does happen. We visited the clinic of a doctor who had been robbed at gunpoint by people who wanted the efavirenz tablets. Um, so one question that is extremely important is what is this drug and what does it do? Um, it, it's easy to have a very confused idea of what this drug is based on media reports. Is it hallucinogenic? Is it an opioid? Is it a stimulant? What is the effect actually like? Uh, so this is actually this is an interesting case. So maybe you can sort of walk me through this. So you're interested in this drug. Um, yes. You've seen the name in a news report, say, and you're like, what is what is that shit? What 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 is it? Yeah. Something like this. Is it publicly available? Like the chemical structure of a drug like this? I mean, is Absolutely. this something you can yes. fully research yes. using? you know, a university medical library. Sure, yes. There's a huge amount of literature on this chemical, efavirenz. Yes. um, About the chemistry of efavirenz, about the pharmacology of it related to its target action, which is on an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. Um, But that's not what's important. You know, we're interested in the in the psychopharmacology, what the experiential qualitative effects of the substance are. And that's something that you will not find in the medical literature. You'll find indirect references to it, patients uh, suffering from insomnia or maybe having mild hallucinations or vivid dreams or, you know, other things that are classified as adverse effects. Um, But still, it becomes difficult to tell what's really going on. So is the next step to get some yourself? So, yes. I think that in order to answer a question like that, it is useful to have a a sort of Shulgin-type attitude and to actually ingest the compound and and characterize the subjective effects. Um, And that will go a very long way to answering a question that is a very complicated question if you're trying to answer it using nothing but rodents. We just, I was in... uh, 
Dallas Fort Worth at the lab of a pharmacologist who's dedicated years trying to figure out exactly what it is that this HIV medication does without giving it to humans and asking them what it feels like. So he's using exclusively rodent models and and cell cultures. And he's come to the conclusion that it behaves like LSD. And there was a Wired article about it. It actually received a pretty huge amount of press attention. And he found that it binds to this receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor, which is strongly implicated in the action of serotonergic psychedelics like LSD or mescaline or DMT. So that's interesting. And then in addition to that, he gives it to rodents and they twitch their head in a specific way that is also positively associated with psychedelic action. So um, he comes to the conclusion that in addition to having this antiretroviral activity, it's also a classical psychedelic drug. So the evidence is at that point stacking up that there's something to this story. This isn't like a totally like bunk bogus story. How how does someone who wants to without I'm sorry, not literally, but in a more removed sense, how does someone who wants to get this drug, you know, to really write about this drug, you probably want to get it yourself. What 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 do you do in that situation? Well, in this instance I went to South Africa and visited an HIV clinic and spoke with a doctor who had actually been conducting self-experiments with the drug himself because he was curious about what was going on. He had a a cabinet full of these efavirens tablets. He had been reading the reports in the news. He had been robbed at gunpoint, and he wanted to know what all the fuss was about. So he took, and they're 600-milligram tablets, so he took a 600-milligram tablet and had this very dramatic effect where he almost peed on the floor of the hospital that he was working in, and one of his patients apparently filed a complaint about him. And, and so he thought that it was a, you know, what the scientific literature might call a psychotomimetic drug, something that made him insane. Um, but even then, you have to wonder about this doctor's previous experience with psychoactive substances. Had he ever smoked cannabis? I don't know. Quite possibly he hadn't. I would assume that he has never taken LSD. Right. Um, so you have to, you can't, you got to sort of grade him on the scale there. Right. So in this situation, you have a lot of different conflicting sources of information. You have the tabloid media, yep. which is, of course, choosing the most sensational description of the effects. It's so dramatic that people are willing to infect themselves with HIV in order to obtain this drug. Then you have the scientific literature, which is saying that mice respond to this chemical in the exact same way as they respond to LSD. Okay. Then you have someone, a doctor, who's most likely inexperienced with psychoactive drugs, saying that it is a psychotomimetic substance that made him go crazy. But where do you, what, which of those do you choose? Which is the the correct interpretation? And I think in order to really understand the issue, the best thing to do is to take the substance and to characterize it yourself. Um, Let's or talk about I, that. Yeah. I, that's what I chose to do. That's what you sh- chose to do. And this sort of has a little bit of a disappointing ending, the story <laughs> relating to efavirens, because I did take, I haven't taken the full 600 milligram tablet. I'm still working on this project, but I've taken 300 milligrams of it. Yeah. And the action is not very dramatic at all. It's not a really anything to write home about at 300 milligrams. So, you know, generally when a journalist, say, went to South Africa to investigate a thing like that, they're saying, I need X, Y, and Z to make this a story. I need to answer X, Y, and Z questions. And what you're doing is in some ways a more open-ended exploration of it because 
you're not testing a specific hypothesis. You're going in somewhat with an open mind as to what could happen in this situation. How do you take that sort of an experience and then turn it into a story? I mean, where where is the story in an experience like that? Right. Well, that's the hard thing is that it it's uh, it's not always clear what the story is. In this instance, the story is almost a summary of the question because the answer still isn't clear. Um, and you can show the various viewpoints. You can speak to the users of the drug. You can watch the dealers cutting heroin with efavirins or whatever. And then the question becomes, is efavirins even used? Is all this real? Is Or if it is used, is it just a meaningless cut that's inserted into heroin exclusively for the purpose of just saying it's there? Right. Um, does it have any activity in the users? Is it active when it's smoked? When it's smoked, what are the thermal decomposition products? There are all these questions that need to be answered before you can make any real claim about what's going on at all. Um, so these are all very complicated issues. It's uh, If you want to look at it superficially, yeah, you can say, oh, people are infecting themselves with HIV. This is an epidemic. This mm-hmm. has got to be stopped. There needs to be prohibition of efavirins or something. But uh, just the, the amount of complexity in this question is enormous. Are you interested in pursuing science outside of journalism or journalism outside of the science, or is it sort of only when these things cross that, that, that you want to work on? Oh, I'm absolutely interested in pursuing science outside of journalism. Um, at the moment, I'm sort of impatient, and I enjoy how easy it is for me to investigate these stories journalistically. If I wanted to answer these questions scientifically, it would be so hard. Yeah. Maybe it would be impossible. Um, you know, if I wanted to get IRB approval to give a healthy human efavirins and conduct experiments on them, you know, give them a, a questionnaire, talk to them about the subjective effects, all this stuff would be very expensive, very difficult, very complicated. And even then, it's unclear whether or not it would yield exactly the sort of information that I'm looking for. Um, or I can pitch it to Vice and be sent to South Africa and have answers very quickly um, by and, and start looking at the scientific aspects of it that interest me and, and maybe not go as deep into them as I would if it was purely a scientific investigation, but go deep enough to start to uncover new information that's important to understanding it journalistically. Hmm. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about, about this feature you did for uh, Harper's Blood Spore. I think it's, it's the longest thing you've published. Is that correct? Yes. Um, it's a pretty, pretty significant 12 or 13,000 word feature. Uh, for people who haven't read it, well, I think we're going to be putting it uh, online, or Harper's going to be putting it online when this comes out, but tell people briefly sort of what, what the story is. The story is about the 1981 unsolved murder of a mycologist named Stephen Pollock, who was a infamous underground figure in the mushroom community. He um, pioneered a lot of very important techniques for clandestine mushroom cultivation. He published a a seminal book on mushroom cultivation. He discovered at least three new species of psilocybin-containing mushroom and was the first person to sell a psilocybin-containing sclerotium, which is a a truffle sort of structure that has now become immensely popular in the Netherlands. 
I'm sort of interested first in how you come across a story like this. Like what's what's your first is this the kind of story that's been sort of bouncing around these forums and bolt and boards? Like there's certain stories like this that are sort of deep in the lore, I think, sometimes that no one's ever really investigated as a journalist. What was your first encounter with this story? I got into the story very indirectly. Um, I was researching something that was not directly connected at all. It was, uh, there's a penis-shaped mushroom. Uh, it's a, a variety of Psilocybe cubensis, the penis envy variety, that is considered to be one of the more potent varieties, and it's cultivated by a lot of underground mushroom growers. And this is not a naturally occurring mushroom. Uh, this is something that had to be produced through artificial selection, and that's weird. Who was the person who spent however much time it took to selectively breed a mushroom that looks like a penis, a psychedelic mushroom that looks like a penis? So that's something that I wanted to write about for Vice. And when I started speaking with the underground cultivators, trying to figure out who was responsible for this penis mushroom, uh, I started to realize that it was all intertwined with a mysterious murder. You So you heard about the murder? Yes. And then... Uh... I'm going to read the, the, the first first passage from this story. Uh, in July 2011, on the hottest day of the year, I received a fragile-looking Maxell compact cassette from a retired psychology professor and gerbil aggression researcher named Gary Davis. So how are you in the position that people are mailing you cassettes? Yes. So this is a, and the beginning is an oversimplification of something that was a very long and complicated process that I still don't understand entirely. Um, I was researching the penis mushroom. I knew someone who knew Andrew Weil, and he was saying, oh, Andrew Weil is an expert on the subject. You should email him. He'll, he'll be able to give you information. And I didn't really think that he would because this is not some... Andrew Weil seems like a person who'd be like hard to like casually email about something like that. Yes. Yes. This... Yes, absolutely. This was a classmate of his at Harvard who knew him when he before he was famous, so he had some significant connection to him. But so I emailed Andrew Weil, and Andrew Weil then connected me with Paul Stamets. Paul Stamets, without any explanation, as far as I can tell, just unloaded this huge amount of information on me about the murder of Stephen Pollock. And I don't think he does this to everyone, so I have no idea why he chose to send me this information. Um, and it was mostly in the form of a very long series of emails that he had exchanged with a psychology professor named Gary Davis, who's discussed at the beginning of the Harper's article. And I was just chilled reading this exchange um, and wanted to find out more. And when I responded to Paul Stamets, which I did immediately after receiving it, saying, how can I find Gary Davis? How can I learn more about this? I want to research it. He never responded to me. So it was as if he just sent me this information, warned me, said it was dangerous, said that that Stephen Pollock was murdered by corrupt cops in San Antonio and that I would be in danger if I decided to investigate it and then completely cut off communication with me. It was very tantalizing and creepy and uh, I just decided I had to figure out what was going on. I'm interested in how you sort of approach it. The story has elements of conspiracy theory in it. Um, everyone's kind of floating their own somewhat self-serving story about 
how this guy got killed or why he got killed. And you've written, you write in the story that there's a lot of charlatans in this world, which I don't think is going to be like shocking to anyone <laughs> that like, like underground mail order mushroom sales was not like the most above board um, business world. How do you like initially, so you've got this clue. How do you find like a good source? How do you trust people in this kind of a setting? Yes, it's difficult. It's difficult. And, uh, and you have to use the same sorts of methods that a detective would use a lot of the time. You have to look for information that can be corroborated, look for multiple sources claiming the same pieces of information. And if you can't do that, you just have to qualify statements as, as being potentially false. Um, but it's extremely difficult, especially because I think that the world of mushrooms is full of an unusual amount of crazy people. I remember very distinctly having a conversation when I was probably 17 or 18 years old uh, after the very the, f- the first time I ever did LSD, and I was thinking that the patterns I saw looked exactly like Navajo patterns. So then you have to ask, are Navajo patterns based on psychedelic experiences or there's a chick there's an obvious sort of chicken and the egg causation and that that's obviously a question that comes up when you start thinking about these people who are deeply deeply interested in psychedelic mushrooms is does it attract people like this or is that partially an effect of heavy mushroom use this sort of eccentric behavior right right and what in the theory that i just outlined is completely independent of the effects of psilocybin right. which may or may not also push people towards fringe beliefs there's so many variables at play and and when when culture and and sort of these kinds of science intersect when you started like when you started investigating these characters did you start um you know a journalist might go find out about their childhood what what do you sort of what did you look for in these people who were in this story well i had one very important aim and that was to actually solve the murder. That was why I was doing this. I wasn't hoping to paint some kind of a confused, disjointed portrait of Pollock's life, which may have been the end result, but I wanted to actually solve the murder because the impression that I got throughout the investigation was that people didn't care. And I thought, well, maybe if one person who really did care decided to put some serious effort into it, they could come up with an answer because things have changed. There's a lot of major changes that have happened in forensic science that have made it much easier to do newspaper research, all sorts of things that that people didn't have access to a decade ago or two decades ago or three decades ago. And, uh, And so little things like there were bloody rags found on the crime scene when Pollock's body was discovered. He was clutching a pile of human hair and... There wasn't DNA testing in 1981 when he was found. They only had some very inaccurate technique called PGM isoenzyme typing, and uh, and that can only narrow people down into three different categories, so it's borderline useless. And uh, so that was a question. What if we genetically test the hairs? Maybe that will provide an answer. Or maybe enough time has passed that someone's girlfriend might just be willing to talk about it because he's dead now or someone's brother will be able to come forward and and talk about it um i thought that it would be possible 
Do you believe that you did solve the murder? I, no, I don't think I solved the murder. I think that I have probably identified the people responsible, um, not definitively, but I have a, a pretty clear idea of where the, the evidence points. There are three people who are very strongly implicated in the murder. And, um, you know, even if they were responsible, that could only be the tip of the iceberg. Maybe someone else put them up to it. Maybe there was someone else ultimately responsible higher up the chain. Who knows? But, uh, yes, I, I didn't definitively solve the murder, but I feel confident that the three men who are described in the article were responsible. I was going to say, I, I was going to ask you how you sort of felt about it putting yourself in the story and the sort of first person elements of the story and whether you considered telling the story more detached. And the main effect that your presence in the story has is to reinforce how incredibly awkward it is to ask people about a decades old crime that may have involved their like relatives. Um, It's not necessarily a self glorifying portrait of uh, the journalist. What, what was your sort of, what were you trying to get across by including yourself in the story? That is a good question that I may not have a, a good answer for. I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, there, there, there was some editorial suggestion that I should include myself more in the story um, because in some sense it is a very, it's, it's not a timely story really, maybe in an abstract sense because there's all of the scientific research on the medical potential of, of psilocybin going on at the moment. But this is not, nothing has happened in this case that justifies it being a big article in Harper's. It's not like, and the DNA results are back, and it's yeah. clear that this or that happened. This is just me digging into the past and with no guarantee of any satisfying answer. And I think once you are taking a reader into a potentially pointless and unsatisfying territory, the very least you can do is accompany them on this pointless journey and allow them to understand that you are with them in the confusion and the awkwardness and the potential pointlessness. Is that part of the transition from, say, doing a piece for Vice where it's kind of just like, hey, like I talked to a guy who like blew up his meth lab accidentally and trying to do something for Harper's where you sort of have to say like, this is a meth lab, this is, and you have to sort of make people interested in the topic before you sort of unfold it? Right. Right. I mean, what are what what is what was that shift like for you? Shifting from writing, say, a five hundred thousand word column to this thirteen thousand word feature. I think one one thing that I enjoy about Vice is that, especially in in more recent years, they just have not put any pressure on me to make anything easily understandable, which is a sort of freedom uh, that I that I like to take advantage of. Because one of the main problems with writing about science and writing about some of these subjects is that when people attempt to dumb things down, they lose important information. Um, you know, if I'm interviewing a chemist and I can't talk about chemistry with them, that's a problem. That's going to represent a huge 
huge area of missing necessary information. Um, and, uh, and so Vice really just will not tell me, you need to explain what this or that is. You need to provide background information on this or that discovery. Because I think they understand now that that these things have their own audience and that there isn't necessarily a general audience on the internet as much as there used to be. People find things through search engines, and so you can write an incredibly obscure article about aryl cyclohexylamine chemistry or whatever, and the people that are ready to read it will find it, and the people that aren't ready to read it will either research it enough to understand the material or they will not read it, and it doesn't really matter. Um, and, uh, and that's not something you can do with Harper's. They do want background information. They do want a general audience to be able to understand it. And that was something I struggled with a little bit, especially with this semi-obscure area of psilocybin-containing mushroom research, psychomycology. Do you, do you look at, like, I was sort of wondering whether there were people sort of in the models of writing about counterculture and writing about, like, these sort of separate communities. I mean, I think you're right that the internet has made everything mainstream in a way, um, that, you know, you take any obscure topic, there's 500,000, a million people in the world who are, like, kind of interested in that, and you can probably find them. And that's sort of unprecedented that there is now this world bond but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier to write about those communities. Um, are you are you active? Like, are you on Bolton boards? Are you? Oh, like... absolutely, absolutely. And that's something that I haven't really talked about very much. I, you know, I said that I spend sixty percent of my time reading scientific literature. Yeah. Um, what I didn't mention is that I spend an enormous amount of time on forums because that represents a hugely important source of information. And a lot of that information is scientifically relevant and cannot be found anywhere else. So if you want to know about the subjective effects of some obscure PCP derivative, that's not something you're going to find in scientific literature or journalistically. That's something you will only find on forums. And there's underground forums, above ground forums, there's all sorts of different types. And I am an active participant on many of them because they're great communities where a lot of unique information is shared at a level that is made for people who are part of the subculture who will understand it. So there's no dumbing down. It's not a general audience. And that's yes. where you really find the information. Um, and the same is true on blogs. Um, another, I was thinking of people that I admire. It's, you know, a lot of the people that are writing interesting things are not doing it for the New York Times necessarily. There's a, a medicinal chemist named Derek Lowe who, mm. who writes a, a blog that I think is some of the best science writing anywhere. Um, it's an amazing, amazing blog called In the Pipeline, and uh, I, I don't know if he's recognized as a as a writer in any major way. I've asked him to write for Vice, and he said that he wouldn't. But uh, <laughs> I mean, do you think that this? I, w I won't call it a movement, but do you think that this culture will spawn a publication, or is the decentralized nature of the internet sort of appropriate for this? Spawn a publication in the sense that. Well, when it, when you look at, um, you know, the drug culture of the '60s spawned High Times and, and yes. Rolling Stone magazine. They they the the rise of a counterculture was sort of met on the with a sort of coverage, which yes. both exposed it to a, a wider stream, but also drew writers from sort of within the counterculture. And 
that's not something outside of sort of the blog world that exists anymore. No, it's it's an interesting thing. The the mainstream media is almost exclusively a source of disinformation, um, and people on the forums recognize that. And I don't think they want to contribute to it because being a journalist is something that is is not a job. Any reasonable person would aspire to. It's not a good thing. People are, you know, because I think they're aware that the, the true technical nuances of these things are not going to be accepted by most editors. And so it very well may be impossible to publish a balanced article on some of these subjects in the Daily Mail. I don't know. Um, I think that the downside is, therefore, for a sort of an interested layman, you can't really know what the fuck is going on. I mean, you can't, there's no, there's no intermediate level. You kind of jump straight for like straight into the most sort of advanced. Um, and therefore you don't like, I have very little understanding of, of what's going on. I, I wonder sort of, is there a sort of a Moore's law like effect happening here with all these people throughout the 20th century operating in isolation and shifting to these sort of internet models where people are sharing information freely. Are things just moving faster now? Yes, that's the other thing is that this is all so fast paced that it's hard. You can't, if I wrote a book and I do plan to write a book, I've been working on a book about clandestine chemistry and the emergent psychoactive drug trade on the internet. And, uh, and if I were to publish it immediately it would already be dated at any point because this moves so quickly that the only way to effectively document it is on these forums they become the discussion on the forums becomes the definitive documentation of everything that's going on of every trend and there can be some subsequent analysis of the material on the forums it can be consolidated and summarized for people that don't want to plow through hundreds of thousands of posts of people rambling about whatever yeah but uh but that is that is the information and and this is all publicly available and it's an amazing resource so that's another thing why you know i think there isn't a a huge amount of journalistic coverage in in publications like high times um, because the information already exists for those that that truly want it so it's not necessary also, you know, I know the current editor of High Times, and uh, and there is a resistance at that at that publication to to cover a lot of this stuff because they're a weed centric magazine. Right. So, so it's it's actually something they don't want to do, for the most part. So knowing that that what you want to write a book about is a moving target that you're just never gonna you're never gonna be able to run alongside long enough to get a clear snapshot of it. What what's your strategy? It's uh, the strategy has been to agonize and question what to do. I have no strategy right now. Um, it's a difficult thing, and and I think the really the strategy has just been to try to get as much unpublished historical information through interviews with clandestine chemists as possible. That's been my aim, um, because I don't want to rehash existing information. It doesn't interest me. It's a depressing process creatively. Um, whereas if I'm going out and mining these people for information, I'm getting a lot of things that people don't know about. And, uh, and a lot of times they want to share it. They just don't know how, or they've wanted to sever their ties to their criminal past, things like that. Um, that's been the process so far, but I still haven't entirely shaped this project. Hmm. 
your uh, your father is Errol Morris, the yes. filmmaker. See, I, I just waited till very deep oh, into the my. interview to remember to ask you about this. Um, you grew up, therefore, I'm assuming, around a fair amount of storytelling and you know all things that go along with it. How did you? I mean. How did you sort of choose this approach of uh, of wanting to tell stories in this way? And did you consider filmmaking or anything like that? Uh, yeah, and I still do. I think one of the projects that I was working on in Africa, because we were shooting five separate stories, uh, really can support a feature-length documentary and should. Yeah. I, I think it would be inappropriate to make it anything less because it's such a good story. Um, and, uh, and yes, I do think that film is a great way to tell stories and I plan to make films in the future. Um, in some sense that's a lot easier for me to think about than writing books which just fills me with anxiety. Is this something you can see sort of making a lifetime out of? Or is this like I'm going to do this for 10 years and then I'm going to get into like zoology? Uh, well yeah I am broadly interested in, in science and neuroscience and, and yeah. uh and so who knows what what I'll be working on in the future, but there's just so much in this subject of, of gray market, drug distribution, clandestine chemistry. It's a very rich subject, and it easily could support a lifetime of research. There's no question about it. And at the pace that it's moving, um, it might even be impossible to cover all of it in a lifetime. So I... I uh, it's not an, an issue of worrying that I'll run out of things to investigate, but yeah, there are other subjects certainly. Did you did you go to college? Yes. Yeah. So you you did you did that first zombie story for Harper's like pretty much right when you were done with college then. I have been in and out of college for a long time. It actually the it started out with um, I was a, a sophomore in. Uh, well, I initially went to the University of Chicago, then I transferred to the new school. And when I was a sophomore, in the middle of a astronomy and a physics class, a very difficult semester, uh, Vice asked me to go to the Amazon jungle to do this project that I pitched as attempting to locate this psychoactive tree frog. And, uh, and I thought that I could do both. I thought that I could leave classes for two weeks, spend two weeks in the jungle under these very extreme circumstances, and then just come back the next Monday and resume studying physics and other subjects. And it was difficult, and I ended up leaving school for a while and coming back. And uh, And so that's been the process. Is I've, You know, I unsuccessfully attempted to balance both things, and and it didn't really work out. Did you consciously at a certain point say, I'm just not going to live a normal life here and, and I'm going to go for the, the non-university life? I mean, was that a juncture for you or did you always know you wanted to be working seven days a week reading scientific journals and going to the Amazon? No, and I'm still, you know, I, I very much want to go to graduate school and continue studying science. It's uh, it's something that's important to me and I, I don't want to sever any connection with the academic world because it's something that I value just yeah. as much as journalism. I really very much enjoy lab work. And uh, and in some sense, I think that it's one of the purest types of creation. Um, there's something very satisfying about 
working on the synthesis of a, a new molecule because it just is. Once you've purified it and crystallized it, there's no criticism of the compound. It just is. And, uh, and an article can have all sorts of shortcomings. Maybe it could have been better. Maybe word choice in a certain area wasn't appropriate or could have been improved, but that's not the case with a crystal. You hear about people in other centuries who've been like, I'm a master, like I was a, he was a physicist and also he was like a incredible shoemaker and he like also had like a deep understanding of botany and as this stuff becomes more specialized, it seems more and more impossible for one person to, to sort of get all of that knowledge. Yes. That these absolutely. things are just require the, the bar is just getting higher and higher of, of truly being an expert at anything with regards to science. So I wonder whether you think sort of, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a purity, a pure approach to science. And then there's the sort of muddy approach of storytelling where you never quite get a, a pure story. I, I guess I'm wondering forced to choose between those two, forced to sort of um, take the subjectivity uh, or or to sort of pursue purity, which one, which one is more appealing to you? Well, I would like to do both. I would just, you know, I think that there's no question that some of the most beneficial investigations of subjects have made the choice to include both. That's why P. Call is such an important document from Alexander Shulgin, yeah. because he did both. He wrote the synthesis and the synthesis is real and it works and anyone that has studied organic chemistry can follow the synthesis and make the compound just like he did and that is as objective as it gets and it will never become outdated it is a eternal document of how to make this chemical and then he also writes about having sex with his wife that afternoon or how the soup that she cooked tasted or what the sunset looked like in Lafayette, California that evening. And, uh, and the combination of those two things produces a very valuable document. And I don't think anyone would deny it unless they're just so biased against self-experimentation that they want to blind themselves to something that is clearly significant and helpful to understanding the psychopharmacology of these unusual substances. I noticed in both, I just reread your, your piece, um, The Magic Jews, which is about Hasidic um, uh, psychedelic experimentation at a weird flop house and then in upstate, and I reread uh, The Blood Spore, and the, the Hasidic piece ends on this kind of beautiful human note where you say, I'm not religious, but you kind of have the feeling that you've had a religious experience yeah. in, 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 over the course of it, and Blood Spore ends with... I bl I'm not positive it's the last image, but it ends with this image of this person who was murdered and forgotten his sort of life work being like disseminated to various ends throughout Holland. And they're both, um, they're both human, human endings. You end on the sort of somewhat uplifting human note, I feel like in both cases. And it, it, it made me sort of wonder what you're ultimately looking for, like above sort of the methodology what is the ultimate question you're sort of trying to address in these pieces? I'm asking as big as big questions I can here. Bring out the big guns. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, there are some things that I'm trying to do implicitly. One type of story that interests me is stories that show the stupidity of drug prohibition. And that's kind of like a 
you know, it's a subject people are very preachy about. A lot of people are tired of hearing about it. They've seen the statistics. They know. They agree. They're annoyed by it. They don't want to hear about it. Um, and it's not something, it's something that I care about a lot, but something that I don't want to write about in the conventional sense. And so I am, I am drawn to stories that I feel show how drug prohibition is interfering with scientific research or with people's lives, but does it implicitly. That's kind of like a very... That's level one. That's level one, um, because I think that that is what happened with Pollock, that he was not a bad person, and that the real criminal in all of this was the scheduling of psilocybin. Again, this is, you know, a kind of like not the sort of thing people want to hear. It's a little bit tired as a statement, but it's true that these things are having a massively negative impact. Then on a higher level, um, I suppose just to communicate uncertainty, because that's another thing that I am passionate about is uncertainty and, and not being overly sure about anything. Um, and that's one, one of the, the main things that you are immersed in in science is uncertainty, not certainty. It's not as if the scientist suddenly understands everything, the doctor suddenly understands anything. My, maybe for someone smarter than me that's the case, but in my experience, the deeper you go, the more uncertain everything becomes and the more astonishing it becomes that anything works at all. And so those are the stories that I am most drawn to, the ones that don't have any clear answer, don't have a clear ending, that just allow you to experience the complexity and uncertainty of life as directly as possible. I think that's as good a note as any to end on. <laughs> Unless you got you got anything else you want to get off your chest? I guess so. I mean, I, I guess that's it. Worse for me. Okay. <laughs> and that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max and Evan. Uh, thanks to our editor, Superior, uh, Lauren Kirchner. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go on iTunes, uh, rate it, uh, give us a comment, whatever. And thanks to our intern, Gavin Jenkins. Thanks to our sponsors, Hulu Plus and Tiny Letter. Check them out. It helps support the show. Uh, check us out next week here. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.